0: which are still impacting our lives today. And this morning we're going to get some insight into this man's life and see just what it takes to make an impact on the world. Now the first 17 verses are really an autobiography. Paul is talking about himself, he's speaking in the first person, he is sharing his heart, exposing his life, because he wants both the church at Rome and us to know who he really is. And this introduction reveals four things about Paul. The man, the message, the ministry, and the motive. This morning we're just going to look at the first seven verses which form the salutation. If you trim it down, these first seven verses are just essentially this. Verse 1, Paul. Verse 7, to all who are in Rome. That's the skeleton of the first seven verses, but Paul fleshes it out with a lot more information. He tells us, first of all, about the man in verse 1. And we looked at this last week, so I just want to touch on it today. Paul describes himself four ways in verse 1. First of all, his name, Paul. He was Hebrew by birth, born into the tribe of Benjamin, and named after the most famous person in the history of that tribe, King Saul. And he had spent the first part of his life living up to that name. He says in in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5 that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's like our phrase today. He was a man among men. He stood out among the Jewish people, head and shoulders above everyone else. But after meeting the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he is now living up to the name of a new king. And his new name reflects that change. In fact, the name Paul is actually... A Gentile name, which I think really underlines the change that Jesus Christ had made in his life. He had been the ultimate religious racist, and now not only is he taking the gospel to the Gentiles, but he's taking the gospel to the Gentiles with a Gentile name. Second, we see his status in verse 1. He says, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was born as a free man in the eyes of the Roman government, but he understood something. He understood that everybody is a bondservant. Everybody has a master. Like Bob Dylan used to sing, you've got to serve somebody. Jesus said in John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And Paul will later say in Romans chapter 6, and verse 16, that you are a slave of whoever you obey. And there are really only two choices. You have the choice to obey sin or obey righteousness. And the master behind sin is Satan. The master behind righteousness is Jesus Christ. So the question is, who's your master? Paul changed masters. And so he gladly states his new status as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we see his calling in verse 1. He says, called as an apostle, now, I want you to notice that word called. God is not running a volunteer army. If you are in God's army, you were drafted and commissioned. So you don't get to say, I would like to be an, an admiral in the Navy. They have admirals in the Navy. I volunteer to be in this area of service. So you don't even get to pick your spiritual gift. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, that he distributes them just as he wills. In fact, Paul didn't even get to pick the territory that he worked in. If you had given him his choice, he would have said, I would like to be the apostle to the Jews. But God said, no, you're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, your gift is not the same as Paul's gift, but you were called into service just as much as he was. And so I want to make a point to you this morning. If you are not serving the Lord, you are AWOL. Fourth thing we see in verse 1 is his passion. And that's at the end of the verse where he says, set apart for the gospel. Paul had streamlined his life. He had narrowed down his purpose. He was single-minded. He said, I do this one thing. I'm not a jack of all trades. I am a specialist in the gospel. That was the theme of his life. That was his passion. Are you old enough to remember the old TV show, Have Gun, Will Travel? Well, Paul would say, Have Gospel, Will Travel. You see, that's the man that Paul was. And then secondly, we see the message And this morning I just want to pick out seven things about Paul's message in these verses. First of all, the semantics of the message. Notice the end of verse 1. It's called the gospel. Now most of us know that the word gospel means good news. But I'm not sure we fully appreciate just how good the good news is. Maybe to appreciate it, you need to look at the messages of the religions of the world. They are not good news. In fact, they're bad news. And you can tell that by looking at the faces of their leaders. The priests, the monks, the gurus, the holy men, their faces are hard and grim and solemn and tired. They are not happy people. And it's not hard to discover why. Because they have a self-help message. They have a religion based on works. They tell you how to find God by your own efforts. And you don't have to go very far down that road to reach the conclusion that that task is impossible. A religion based on what you and I do just becomes a burden. And Paul understood that. Paul had previously preached a message of good works and high moral standards and legalism. And in Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, he tells us what that approach leads to because he says the cry of his heart was, wretched man that I am. Because though he knew what to do, he couldn't do it. But now his message is good news. Why is it good news? Because Jesus has done what we could never do. And He has provided the way for us to God. And it's not based on anything you do. It's based on everything that He has already done. That's the semantics of the message. Secondly, I want you to see the source of the message. And that's in that phrase at the end of verse 1. The gospel of God. Now, the term gospel was a common word in the first century. If the army went out and won, the news came back, and that news was the gospel. Good news. If word came back from your school that you graduated, that was gospel. Good news. If word came from the doctor that you were pregnant, that was gospel. Or maybe not pregnant, that was gospel. Good news. See, this is a common word, and so Paul wants to clarify that this, not, this is not a message of man's good news to man. It is a message of God's good news to man. You see, we didn't think up the gospel. We didn't anticipate the gospel. We didn't deserve the gospel. We didn't do anything to contribute to the gospel except rebel. It's God's good news. He's the source. You say, well, why would God bring good news to a world full of people who reject and scorn Him? Well, that's the question that we will contemplate for eternity. Because the answer is not rational, it's relational. The answer is not found in law, the answer is found in love. There's a story told in France about a mother's love for her son. Do what? Okay, keep talking. Where was I? Oh. As the young man grew up, he got into immorality. And he became enamored with a wicked young lady. All the while, his mother warned him to stay away from her. And so you had a competition between this wicked young lady and the young man's mother. And sensing the mother's displeasure, the wicked lady resented her and questioned the young man's loyalty. And finally, she challenged him and said, If you really want to demonstrate your love for me, then I want you to get rid of your mother. Well, he refused until one night in a drunken state, he finally agreed. And as the story goes, he went over to his mother's house and beat her to death. And then he tore her heart out of her body. And as he rushed back to show it to his lover, he stumbled and he fell. And he dropped his mother's heart on the road. And as he was sprawled out on the pavement, from that bleeding heart came a voice that said, my son, are you hurt? You see, that is the love that God has for us in our rebellion and our wickedness. And that's the reason why, though we don't deserve it, we have good news proclaimed to us. The source of the message is God. And then third, we see the substantiation of the message And that's verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, when Paul says Holy Scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament. You see, the gospel didn't begin in the New Testament. It was promised throughout the Old Testament. It is good news, but it's not new news. Moses preached the gospel. Abraham preached the gospel. David preached the gospel. Isaiah preached the gospel. There are over 330 prophecies in the Old Testament which are fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. Christ is the subject of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, you remember on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, it says, Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The message is substantiated by the fulfilled prophecy of the Old Testament. And then fourth, I want you to see the substance of the message. And that's in verse three. It's the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand concerning his son. The message is centered in a person. In his book, Basic Christianity, John Stott said, take Christ out of Christianity and you disembowel it, there is practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity and all else is circumference. See, if you take Buddha out of Buddhism, you still have a philosophy. If you take Muhammad out of Islam, you still have a bunch of rules and regulations. But if you take Christ out of Christianity, it falls apart. It's all based on His Son. That's why we say... Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Because the substance of the message is a person. And notice what Paul says about this person in verse 3. Concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, who was declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Now, Paul draws a contrast here between Jesus' two natures. He refers to who Jesus is in verse 3, according to the flesh. And he refers to who Jesus is in verse 4, according to the Spirit. Now, I know that your translations read a variety of ways, and some of them would lead you to the conclusion that he's talking about the Holy Spirit in verse 4. But really, these two phrases are grammatically identical in the original language. He's making a contrast between who Jesus was according to the flesh and according to the Spirit. First of all, who was Jesus according to the flesh? Well, he tells us in verse 3, He is born of the seed of David. Who was He according to the flesh? He was the Son of David. That's His humanity. Jesus was an actual human being. He had a human nature. He was not part man and part God. He was 100% man. He got hungry, he got thirsty, he laughed, he cried. When you cut him, he bled. He was a man. Now, why is that important? Well, that's important because if Jesus was going to take our place, he had to be a man. If he was going to take the place of man, he had to be a man himself. And Paul adds the further detail, he was not just any man, he was born of the seed of David. In order to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament, he had to come through the lineage of David. And when we come to the New Testament, we find that Mary, Jesus' mother, and Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, both traced their descendants back to David. And then secondly, who was he according to the Spirit? Verse 4. He was the Son of God. That's his deity. Jesus was God. And again, he was not part man and part. God. He was 100% God. And what is it that proves to us that he was God? Well, he tells us in verse four, who was declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. You see, Jesus was always the son of God. Even as a little baby, he was God manifest in the flesh, but it was his resurrection that declared him to be the son of God. In fact, this word declared is the Greek word horizo, from which we get our word horizon. It means the defining mark, the defining boundary. The resurrection was the defining mark of who Jesus is. And that's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You see, it's because of the resurrection that we know that Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus claimed to be God, and because of the resurrection, we know that he is. So he is both son of David and son of God. He is fully man and fully God. He is a hundred percent man and a hundred percent God. You say, well what is Paul's point in all of this? Well he tells us at the end of verse four by describing just who this person is, he says, it is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus was his human name, but it wasn't just chosen arbitrarily. Remember in Matthew chapter one and verse 21 the angel told Joseph to call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Savior. That's his human name. And then secondly, he's called Christ. That literally means anointed one. In the Hebrew, it's the word Messiah, the promised deliverer, the promised king of Israel. And then the word Lord means master. But it's the word used in the Septuagint to translate the name of God in the Old Testament. The name of God Yahweh in the Old Testament is translated into the Greek version as Lord. So as it's used here, he's telling us that he's talking about God, the supreme master. So when Paul says Jesus is Lord, he's saying that the human Jesus is the mighty God, master of all. And that is the substance of the message. Jesus is Lord. But see, that's not the only question we have to answer. You see, the question you have to answer is not just, is Jesus Lord? The question you have to answer is, is Jesus your Lord? Can you put the personal pronoun in verse 4 the way Paul does? Paul says, he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then fifth, we see the sustenance of the message. And that's in verse 5. Through whom we have received grace. This is a gospel of grace. Grace means unmerited favor. We understand grace in the acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God doing for you what you don't deserve. And Paul understood grace. That's why he includes himself in verse 5. He says, we have received grace. Paul had been the leading Enemy of the gospel of God. His greatest mission in life was to kill Christians and stomp out the name of Christ. And while he was heading 180 degrees in the opposite direction, God stopped him in his tracks on the Damascus Road. You say, Well, how could someone so rebellious be brought to his knees before Jesus? And the answer is the same way you were brought to your knees before Jesus, it was the grace of of God. You see, only the grace of God can produce those changes in an individual's life, and only the grace of God would want to. The gospel is a message of grace. It's God doing for you what you could never do. There's an old story from the Middle East about a man who was traveling on his donkey when he came upon a small fuzzy object lying in the road. So he dismounted and he went over to look more closely and he found a sparrow lying on its back with its scrawny legs thrust upward. At first he thought the bird was dead. And then when he looked closer, he realized it was very much alive. And so he said to the sparrow, Are you all right? And the sparrow said, Yes. And the man said, well, what are you doing lying on your back with your legs pointed toward the sky? And the sparrow responded that he had heard a rumor that the sky was falling, and so he was holding his legs up in support. And the man replied, you surely don't think that you're going to hold up the sky with those two scrawny legs, do you? And the sparrow said, one does the best he can. Now, I would suggest to you that that's a good description of the way most people approach God. They have heard the rumor that the judgment of God is coming, and so they're doing the best they can. And the best they can do is two scrawny bird legs. But I want to tell you this morning, the message of God is not a message of do the best you can. It's a message of grace. God already let the sky fall on Jesus in your place, even though you don't deserve it. And then sixth, we see the scope of the message. And we see that in verse five, in that phrase, all the Gentiles. It's a gospel for the whole world. In the Jewish mind, there were only two types of people. There were Jews and non-Jews. They didn't see any particular races. They just grouped all the non-Jews into one category, and they were called Gentiles. And Paul says this message is for all the Gentiles. This message about the Son of God, who was born into the lineage of the King of Israel, is for all the Gentiles. It's a universal message. It's a global gospel. That's the scope. And then seventh, and finally we see the significance of the message. Verse 5 begins, through him and it ends for his name's sake. It all begins and ends with God. It's all by his grace and for his glory. You see, the significance of the message is that he gets glorified. Paul tells us about that in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10 where he tells us that one day, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The significance of the message is the glory of God. You see, that's why salvation is 100% God's doing. If it were 50-50, we would split the credit. But it's all His work. Paul will later say in Romans eleven thirty six 36 that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. What a message. The semantics, it's the good news. The source, it's all from God. The substantiation, it's prophesied throughout the Old Testament. The substance, it's all about a person. Jesus Christ, our Lord, The sustenance, it's all by God's grace. The scope, it's for all men everywhere. And the significance, it's all for his glory. Now, what should be our response to such a great message? Well, that's the ministry, point three. And Paul describes his ministry in one simple phrase in verse five. I want you to see it. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Paul says, my ministry is to go to all the Gentiles and bring about the obedience of faith. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? I find it very instructive that in this letter where Paul writes, and his message is that salvation is by faith apart from works, He begins the letter with this phrase, and then when you get to the end of the book, you'll find in chapter 16 and verse 26, he ends with this same phrase, which tells me that salvation by faith apart from works always results in obedience. Genuine faith always leads to practical, lived-out faithfulness. Genuine faith is obedient faith. See, that's the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Jesus said, go, baptize them, teach them to observe, what? All that I commanded you. Here in Romans chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, how is the whole world hearing about their faith? Well, because it's obedient faith. It's the kind of faith you can see. What's our statement of faith? He tells us back in verse 4. It's that Jesus Christ is our Lord. And that term Lord implies what? Obedience. Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Genuine faith is expressed in practical obedience. You say, well, Dan, I don't think I can do that. Oh, yes, you can. You can do that. Because, you see, if you don't think you can do that, then you don't understand God's grace. You don't understand who God has made you to be. Because I want you to notice in closing, Paul says three things about these Christians in Rome, which applies to you as well. Three things about their identity and your identity. The first thing he tells us is in verse 6. He says, you are the called of Jesus Christ. Now, literally, that phrase reads, the call, we're called as Jesus Christ. That's possessive. You see, he's not talking here about the fact that Jesus Christ has called you because that's really the work of God the Father. What he's saying is, having been called, you now belong to Jesus Christ. You are attached to Him. You are connected to Him. And Paul is going to tell us later in this book in Romans 8, 39, nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As a Christian, you are never alone. God doesn't call you to obey and leave you on your own. You are never alone because your new identity is that you belong to Jesus Christ. Secondly, he says in verse 7, you are the beloved of God. Now, if you struggle with your sense of self-worth, if you struggle with your sense of significance, I just want you to grasp this concept this morning. You are somebody because the ultimate somebody loves you. You are the beloved of God. And let me explain that to you. While it's true that God loves everybody, it's only believers that he refers to as his beloved. If you're a Christian, you have a unique place in the heart of God. You see, I love my neighbors and I love you, but only my wife and children are my beloved. God loves the whole world. But only believers are his beloved. And that's your new identity. And then thirdly, he says in verse 7, you are called as saints. Saints is the Greek word hagios. It means holy ones. A saint is not a little guy that stands on a dashboard. A, A saint is not some dead person who has been venerated by the church. A saint is not some dead person who is hearing prayers. We are saints. And we are saints not because men say so. We are saints because God says so. You say, well, how could God call me a saint? How could God call me holy? Well, the explanation is in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's one of my favorite verses. God took your sin and He put it on Christ. And then He took Christ's righteousness and He put it on you. So that in God's eyes, you are just as righteous as Jesus Christ. And that's why God can say, you are a saint, you are a holy one. Now, the problem with most unbelievers is they can't face the fact that they're a sinner. The problem with most Christians is they can't face the fact that they're a saint. You are a saint, and God gives you every reason to live like one. You say, well, Dan, I, I can't really say that I'm a saint. I can't really say that I'm beloved of God. As I sit here this morning, I can't really say that I belong to Jesus Christ. Well, if you're saying that, God's got some good news for you. He invites you to come to Jesus Christ this morning. And He invites you to come with empty hands because there's nothing you can offer Him. His grace is already paid the total price. He just wants you to come so that He can forgive you and cleanse you and make you new. I'm going to ask the praise team to come and close our service today. And we're going to offer that invitation to you. We're going to offer you the opportunity to come to the Lord Jesus if you've never done that before. There may be others here who want to...